According to Forbes magazine, over the next two decades, an unprecedented shift of demographics and finances will take place and it will be felt by nearly every American and by extension every Canadian. That's because baby boomers are expected to transfer in excess of 30 trillion dollars to the next generation, an exchange of wealth that has been dubbed the Great Wealth Transfer. Much, while well not all of that wealth, is in the form of family-owned businesses. Businesses that even when endowed with huge amounts of money and support from the best lawyers available, still blow up. Look at the Rogers family as an example. A nasty family feud that arrived on the headlines on the heels of the Stronic Civil War. If the rich can't handle it, asks Nicole Garten, how can the average to medium-sized small or small family business hope to navigate the choppy waters of succession? In her book, Harnessing Conflict, How Business Family Can Not Just Survive But Thrive, Garten addresses the myriad issues that need to be attended to when passing ownership of the family business onto the next generation. I invited Nicole Garten to join me for a conversation that matters that every family business must have when planning a transfer of ownership. Nicole, welcome. Thank you. It's a tricky business. And I, I know it sounds funny to use that, but it really is. We see this happen on the big you know, names and it blasts out onto the headlines, but it's a, an internal struggle that virtually every family-owned business has to have, well, can have, and doesn't necessarily know how to navigate their way through. What are the dangers of not getting ahead of this and planning properly? Well, thank you for asking. I think there's macro dangers and micro issues. So on a macro basis, uh, small to medium-sized business apparently account for more than half of Canadian GDP and they're estimated to employ up to 70% of Canadians. And so this is a significant part of our economy and a lack of planning is gonna affect not just the individual families and the hard work and then the customers, but on a national level, this has incredible importance in terms of our economy and employing Canadians. Yeah, get it wrong and people will lose their jobs. There'll be a lack of uh, economic activity and so on. So you, that's on the macro level. On the micro level, though, how do you then start to address the many, many issues that get in the way and need to be anticipated and addressed in, in, in advance? Well, I think you mentioned this generational transfer of wealth. So uh, it, the estimate is that most family businesses as the baby boomers are starting to retire, that the majority of them expect to transfer within the next 10 years. And you know, the natural human inclination is not necessarily to be proactive when something is difficult or maybe stressful. And so a huge percentage of these people have done no planning. So I think the first step is just to understand that the conversation needs to happen. It's supposed to be a five to 10 year process in terms of getting ready for this transfer. And it's not just the years of hard work and wealth that you have uh, attempted to build for your family, but it's also your employees, it's your customers, and the legacy that you wanna leave. So uh, it's important to start early and having the conversations now to prevent a disaster later for not just your family, but the community that you've contributed to. How do you start that conversation? Because it's not 
atypical, I would imagine, that somebody would say, okay, I want to sit down and talk about how we're going to move forward and what the succession planning for the business is going to be. Oh, don't bother. That's a long way off. We're not interested. You know, it's your business and so on. Like there's an awful lot of resistance to having that conversation. How do you get it started? Well, in family business methodology, they talk about the three circle model. So there is the family circle, there is the business circle, and then there is the ownership circle. So the family circle is, you know, the often mom and dad and maybe uh, siblings, cousins that are involved in the business, they need to do planning as a family in terms of what succession looks like for them in terms of their own estate plan. The business circle is succession in terms of management, you know, who's going to be the successor of the CEO, are there other key employees, what does that look like in terms of training and coming up with a plan such that all that knowledge and skills can transfer to the next generation of employees. And then it's the ownership circle and that as wealth transfers from generation one to two or even three, what does this look like in terms of who's going to be an owner? So do you want to keep the goose that lays the golden eggs together? Or maybe do you want to kill the goose, i.e. do you want to sell a business and then have transgenerational wealth in terms of the, the funds that come from that business that you can use for other ventures. And so that's an ownership discussion. So I think the, the way to start is to start with which circle are you in? and then try to have a, a plan such that the circles that intersect are going to cooperate with each other. So does it need to start in the business? So I think about it from the perspective of a small business owner that doesn't, let's say, have a family member that's part of that team, or maybe there is one. How do you then start to say, okay, here's the structure by which we're gonna move on to the next generation of leadership, which maybe not necessarily be uh, a uh, one of the the family members because they haven't got enough experience or whatnot. How do you then start to like to create that structure so that it is respected by the family and then also this ownership plan? Well, I think the the Rogers. I know it's a large business, but yeah. the Rogers dispute has been in the news, and that was an interesting uh, case study in that the family no longer worked in the business other than the the patriarch, which was Ted Rogers. So uh, two of the children, Edward Rogers and Melinda Rogers, had been employees, but in fact, none of the children actually were executives in the business. So Rogers is a you know, multi-billion dollar publicly traded company, 25,000 customers. I think their annual revenue is about 14 billion. I mean, this is a large, <laughs> this is a large scale issue, but in fact, it can apply to smaller scale businesses because Ted thought, okay, None of the kids work in the business, but it's he seemed to have two important goals, which was that the family retained ownership and that one person was in control. So what he did is he set up something called the Rogers Control Trust, which was actually a will where Scotia Trust was the trustee and he had an advisory board, uh, which was a group of family members and trusted advisors, and they voted um, one person who was the Rogers Control Trust chair, and then that person voted the 97.5% of voting shares of Rogers, and so that person was able to hire and fire the board. And so he set a very clear methodology um, in terms of ownership, but in terms of control. I think what, what failed was a lack of transparent and open communication uh, between the parties, because Edward, who is the son, 
I think, purported to try to change the CEO without maybe a full and transparent conversation with the board of Rogers Communications, but also the Rogers Control Trust Board. And there was an accidental phone call where the CFO accidentally phoned the CEO who heard in, in this phone call of this plan to replace him and the entire executive, which precipitated a crisis. And that's how you saw some of the public disputes and it's probably embarrassing and damaging to Roger's shareholder value, not least of which they're in the middle of a, I believe, $26 billion takeover of Shaw Communications and in regulatory review, so it couldn't have come at a more inopportune time. So even if you set up a, a clear plan and it's beautifully lawyered as Ted Rogers was, that doesn't replace regular, open and transparent communication between the parties. <laughs> yeah. So how then do you avoid something like that, especially when you're a smaller business? What kinds of discussions do you have to have so that when there is this transfer, you understand that the values that were the founding values of, of those people who put the business in place remain intact and are exercised going into the future? So that's a good question. So the, the basic methodology is twofold a family charter or a statement of values, number one, and then number two, regular structured communication. So when you're in any kind of negotiation, you can think it can be distributive or integrative. So distributive might be you're buying a car. So say you go onto the car lot and you don't have a long-term relationship, you don't have trust, it's a finite pie, and you're gonna use negotiating methodology to maximize your gains. So the bigger piece of pie you get, the smaller, the salesperson gets. That is one kind. Another kind of, of negotiation is integrated, which is, for example, a family business or maybe an employment context or maybe it's a divorce where you have extremely strong mutual interests, which is the well-being of the parties, maintaining long-term relationships, maximizing wealth. And so when you're in long-term negotiations and communications, there will inevitably be time where there's conflict uh, conflict is, there's nothing wrong with it, it's an inherent part of being human. And the question is when it happens, if you have a clear idea of what your mutual integrated interests are, it's much easier to work through that conflict in a constructive way. And you can even come on the other side better than you were before. So, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't have to be complicated, but it should be an intentional meeting where we say, okay, who are we as a family? You know, we have this successful corner store, or maybe we have a car dealership, or you know, whatever kind of business it might be, industrial piping, whatever it is. It's who are we as a family? What does this business mean to us? What does wealth mean to us? What does legacy mean to us? And what makes us unique and really matters? And get buy-in from everybody to get really clear on those values, and then have intentional regular meetings and. They don't have to be professionally facilitated. It can just be a family meeting, but you proactively bring up issues before they arise. You talk through things, you keep the lines of communication open, you build trust. And when it gets difficult, as inevitably will, you can focus on those values. And I, I think in the Stronach case and in the Rogers case, I think those were fundamentally communication breakdowns. And it got really, uh, distributive, unfortunately, for those families, which was, you know, damaging for sure in terms of their relationships, embarrassing, you know, damaging the legacy and arguably damaging the 
goodwill and brand of the business. So it was not great all around. So I think for the regular person, yes, get the best lawyer you can. Yes, get the best accountant you can. But they don't lead. You lead because you decide what are our values, what really matters to us. Keep the communication going and then have the technical piece follow your values, not, not have them lead you. So does that discussion start in the family first? And then does the family then have independent discussions with the leadership in the company, even though it may be many of the same people, but once you come into the company, there are other you know, uh, members of that team that need to be a part of it. Does there need to be this ongoing dialogue between both? So I, I believe it should start in the family first and the family should get really clear because those in fact are the key the key you know drivers generally of the business is often it's been traditionally dad but now it might be mom and or dad and get clear in terms of what the values and goals are and then that will drive what the business you know methodology and goals are and the ownership um, goals so an example uh, the Griffiths family is another example in that uh, I, what was Mr. Griffiths Sr.? Um, he, incredibly successful right. um, entrepreneur, beautiful tax plan, but I don't think that there was four kids, but my understanding from presentations that Emily Griffiths has done is that the two older children were quite a bit older and the two younger children didn't really know them as well, so it was a lack of trust and knowledge and shared values and that even though there was preeminent planning that lack of a clarity of vision and direction, once that generation passed away, exploded as well at that time into litigation. So I think if dad had had a family meeting and got the kids in the room in terms of clarity of what the future looked like, did they want to own this business together? You know, what were the goals and objectives, strengths and weaknesses of them and got on the same page? I think it would have been, he should have saved probably a lot of time and money on the lawyers and just spent more time with the kids. Well, that's an interesting point because if you look at the Griffiths family, they had in essence two different divisions within, you know, within the family ownership. There was the sports side and then there was the broadcasting side. Who was going to be uh, owners? Who wasn't? What, who could and couldn't, you know, determine how those businesses were going to move forward? So. Uh, that comes to you know your point about ownership. What's you know how do you transfer that ownership from which may have been the founder to the next generation in a way that's going to mitigate your tax costs and legal costs and so on, but help to keep the what has become you know the source of of income and wealth for the family intact. So the have you heard of the concept shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations? No, I have not. So, shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. Yes, in three generations. So <laughs> the first generation comes from nothing, builds all the wealth. The, third genera or the second generation manages it. And then the third generation blows it again. And then the cycle starts okay, again. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> I think, all over again. so I think yeah. that's, that's, let's say that's probably what we want to avoid. So I, I think the idea is what does wealth mean? And it's not just money. Wealth can be thought of in a more uh, global perspective because there's financial wealth, but there's social wealth, there's intellectual wealth, there's relationship 
wealth, there's philanthropic wealth. Like what, what does success look like? And it's not necessarily the third, fourth, or even more generations even owning that particular business. And that's the concept of transgenerational wealth and that you can use this hard work and the resources. And if you're able to exit it in a positive way and then redeploy those assets such that the, member, the further members of the family can use those resources to further their objectives, that's also success. Mm -hmm. And so it's part of elucidating values, it's part of communication, and it's also part of parenting such that you want to raise children such that they can be stewards of the wealth that they perhaps were very lucky to inherit, but being responsible citizens. And if you're given privilege and opportunity, you have a responsibility to give back. And what does that look like for you? And it doesn't happen overnight. It's, this is just like parenting. This is years of investment, conversation, encouragement, leadership, you know, carrot, stick. And the idea is that you leave the next generation position to be the best of who they are and give back as best as they can. And that's the goal anyway. Well, as you're speaking, I think about the Louis family. Uh, you know, started with HY, went to Tong Louie, and now Brant Louie is the third generation running that company. But the succession plan, you know, basically is <laughs> you're going to be here for 10 to 15 years working your way up through the business. You're going to know fully what those values are before you're going to be given, well, the keys to the car. <laughs> that is a good model. And the more you, you speak and, and talk about this is long-term planning. You can't write it out on the back of a napkin and hope that it's going to hold up. So in the Stronach family, which I discussed in my book, Frank Stronach, I think a lot of people are familiar. He came from Austria with virtually nothing, and he built an absolute like, success story, a billion-dollar car parts company. But he also had that, or has that entrepreneurial sort of wild yeah. <laughs> component to him, maybe I would say. And a lot of entrepreneurs have that. If you know, if you think Elon Musk or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, a lot of the genius and the wealth creators are often, you know, very creative <laughs> people. So what happened with that is they built all this wealth and, you know, he had a, or has a son and a daughter, but clearly Belinda appears to have been the apple of his eye. And she came up for years and years and years and was clearly her father's protege and then they expanded into racetracks and Frank got a huge passion in um, agriculture and grass-fed beef and all these things so what happened is they got into the, all these other businesses and they weren't necessarily or definitively not as financially successful as the original business had been and a lot of that conflict came from the fact that my understanding is the agricultural business was losing very large sums of money and then the family had to have a regroup in terms of, you know, was this working? And that precipitated Frank, unfortunately, suing Belinda for $500 million. She countersued. They eventually did settle two years later. And it was the result that it probably should have been and that Frank was able to take the agricultural assets and Belinda was able to take the race car or the racetrack assets. But, you know, avoiding the two years of public and acrimonious litigation probably would have been preferred. And I... I can't imagine they have Christmas dinner together, which is sad because clearly they're very similar to each other and there's a great love and regret. You, know, you touched on an interesting point there. Frank was the entrepreneur 
And then the next generation has to have those leadership and management skills. So I, I'm going to come back to Brant Louie because in the conversation he said, I'm not an entrepreneur. I didn't build the company. What I did is I came in as an experienced member of the team and my responsibility then was to manage it and build on what my father and grandfather had built. And as a result, it's been very successful. It's a good model to look at. Um, so, we've only just begun to touch on this. Tell us a little bit more about what readers can find in the book because they're going to be, the, this will hopefully be a taste for them to say, oh yeah, I need to get that book and I need to start planning now. So the book came out of actually my Masters of Law and Dispute Resolution. So I practiced for many years in wills and estates and family law and I also own a trust company. So family, legacy, finances, conflict are, you know, <laughs> years of <laughs> first-hand experience. So I decided to further my education to get the underlying sort of academic methodology and I ended up writing my thesis on business families and conflict and how you can prevent it to the extent possible and then also when it inevitably happens, how to effectively manage it so it can be constructive rather than destructive. And as a result of everything that I learned in that, I have turned it into a book that hopefully lay people, advisors, and business families can pick up. And we use the Stronach family as an example, but there's a lot of methodology in the book in terms of um, what preventative structures you can put in place, what does good governance look like, and when conflict inevitably happens, what are the sources of it, and what are the best ways to manage it. And I hope that people find the book helpful. Well, it's not a huge book, but it is dense, and as you say, each one of those points or topics is going to take a considerable amount of commitment from each family member to, to see their way through to hopefully success. And even then, I mean, we have the human element that comes into play, and I don't know that you can ever uh, fully um, prevent, you know, different objectives or uh, you know, wants and wishes and dreams of future generations. But that's the magic, that's the magic, that's the beauty and tragedy of humanity. We can build beautiful things and we can also <laughs> be very destructive. So that is, that is the art of it and how can you take the gifts of you know, your family and the humanity that you've been given and use that in the most constructive way possible. Well, it sounds to me like open, honest, uh, and sometimes difficult conversations need to take place. That's right. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.